What an incredible book, Hebrews. You know, as we got into it, I think that uh, there was a, maybe some reservations because there's a lot of topics that it, it hits on again and again and again. But uh, this re- repetitiveness of exhortation and then what I would call, so we'll, we'll call those peaks, and then valleys, which would be like motivations or sustainers or, or foundational truths. But it has such incredible flow as a book. It, it keeps bringing us back to the same truths and foundation and saying, root yourself here. And so as I was studying this week, I was feeling just very encouraged by uh, this chapter. And it doesn't stray from this concept of peaks and valleys. It's filled with exhortations and motivations things to keep us rooted. And last week, I encouraged you to look at uh, the heroes of the Old Testament. It was a lot to cover in a week, and, and I had to run through it like a sprint. And uh, there's so, there is a wealth of understanding of how we live faith as our living a life of faith that we can get through the examples of those that were given from last week. So feel free, and in fact, I encourage you, dig in, check out their stories, and be encouraged. There's a lot again today to cover, and for we have a lot of pastors and teachers in the room, and I'm sure as they were listening to the text, they're going, one sermon, two sermon, three sermon, four, five sermon, six sermons, seven sermons more, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and it's true. There's a lot to take in from this text, but there's an incredible, incredible flow and connection through this chapter. So today, we're going to pretend we've heard all those seven servants more, and I'm going to help us, Lord willing, tie the general understandings from the text together, bring it all together. And so where I want to start is I want to start by saying I think it's important that where we Start and where we finish, where we stay throughout the course of this text and where we stay throughout the course of our lives of faith is in a posture of fixing our eyes on Jesus. Amen? He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the stability. He is the example the perfect example of a race run well, a life in faith. So let's look at the first peak, the first exhortation. This is in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, before we move forward, we just, what, what did we just study? Verse, or chapter 11, the, the therefore is referring to all these incredible pillars, right? Examples, heroes of faith of the Old Testament. So it's saying, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that cloud of witnesses is the people who have run the race already. Yeah? Are you with me? Okay. They've run the race already, and they're around us. I don't know how many of you have run a race before. Maybe you've watched a race, or you've read about a race. 
or you've thought about a race and, you know, but we all understand there's a finish line, right? And we, and we start and, 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 and this is saying we're, we're going to, to fix our eyes on Jesus. So my understanding is that kind of like you might fix your eyes on a finish line, you're kind of, I kind of think of Jesus as being the front runner. A lot of times like he's, or not a front runner, there's another word for it. You can actually hire somebody to run right in front of you. Does anyone know what that's called? A pacer. Yeah, so he's kind of like a pacer because, right, he died on the cross and now he's where? He, he, well, he, he is at the right hand of God, yes, but where else is he? In us. We're the temple of God. And so I picture him as being right there. And, and, and so the cloud of witnesses, this body of, 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 of folks who have, have seen and, and walked out this life of faith are, are cheering us on as we pursue and, and, and follow and fix our eyes on Jesus. And it says this. This is peak number one. Let us throw off everything that hinders. Let us throw off everything that hinders. And Scott gave a, a little sneak preview of what that might look like. Can we remember what that might look like? If you're thinking about a race... What could hinder you? Anyone? What could hinder you if you're running a race? Not focusing? Sure. Yeah. Weather? Okay. Yeah, that's true. What if I decided to wear a 50-pound backpack? Is that going to be a problem? You know, if I'm carrying dumbbells because I just want some extra guns by the time I finish? Yeah? Is that going to be a problem? Is that throwing off everything? When we run in a race, when they ran in a race at this point in time anyway, they often ran naked. Crazy. That would have been something to see. <laughs> something to see. But they certainly weren't carrying anything. What are things we might carry? Anyone? Guilt. What was the other thing? Your phone? True. <laughs> the, pho the phone might be leading to issues with guilt as well. So <laughs> anything else? Shame, trauma. How about stuff? I mean, I think in this country, right, we really love our stuff. I mean, I, I hold on to a whole bunch of stuff. Now, the question is, is that stuff... My God, right? Am I placing that above God? Am I putting a priority on the stuff? This is the things that I have. To be happy, I just have to have the stuff, right? Is that true? Do we believe that? Anyone? I need more, more from you. Is that true? No. no, it's not true. It's not true. Okay, perfect. I also think about, do you remember when we were teaching out of uh, uh, Matthew, I think it is, and Jesus sends the disciples out? Do you remember that? And he said, he said, travel light, travel light. And so this is the same concept. There's a mission. There's a purpose. There's things that God has for you. We believe that there's things that God has for us. Amen? Amen. And so are we fixing our eyes on Jesus? Are we grounding ourselves? in him? Are we casting aside distractions and stuff, shame, guilt, these other burdens that can slow us down? Laren, you're asking a whole lot. So does Jesus. He asks a lot. But he promises more, right? He promises more. And we see that even in this text. I'm going to dig into this later, but I'll come back. So for the joy set before him, him being Jesus, he endured the cross. And Scott talked about from last week, the city, that is our joy set before us, right? As I thought about running, 
and I thought about fixing my eyes on Jesus for he ran the perfect race. I thought about my own enjoyment in pursuing uh, triathlon. This is a few years ago. And, and as I was training, I stumbled upon a pro triathlete called Lionel Sanders. And he was second in the world at the time. Uh, and, uh, and, and more relevant was everything this guy did was on the internet. So... <laughs> You know, if I wanted to know what he was eating, you could find it. If you wanted to know how he was training, you could find it, you know. And so I would focus on this guy, and I would watch videos, and I would try to absorb what little I could to go and run a miserable triathlon, right? So, like, I did everything. This guy does it with incredible grace. Aaron does it, you know, and he's like, you know, gets across the line, but we got there. So I was focused on this guy to get a little information to make me a little better. You see where I'm going? Oh, we're tracking. How much more can we learn to live from Jesus? We can get so fixated on things, on stuff, on living well in our current cultural setting that we forget that the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who lived best, is Jesus. Amen? Are we grounding ourselves in pursuit of living like Jesus? So that gets us through the first three verses. And this brings us into 4 through 11, which is a really challenging text, and there's a lot of nuances to this. So if you have questions, I'd encourage you, come and talk to me. Um, I may not have answers, but I'd love to talk about it with you, um, to think about it. I spent a lot of time talking with a handful of people about this. This section is about discipline. And as I tried to wrap my mind around what the ultimate takeaway from this section would be, the way that I landed was here. So, discipline is suffering in the path of obedience, and it's not meaningless, okay? Suffering in the path of obedience, and it is not medium, uh, meaningless. And this concept of the path of obedience, I would say if your eyes are fixed on Jesus and your your goal is to be transformed and molded into the image of Jesus, then you're, you're, you're walking that path. Check it, make sure you're checking yourself with Scripture. You're walking that path. Make sure you're getting encouragement from believers around you. What the Scripture says, you're walking that path. So as you, as you fix your eyes, as Christ is your primary goal, as Christ, Christ, Christ's likeness and bringing glory and honor to the one who sacrificed everything so that you could have glory and honor, as you make that your focus... You could have holiness in him. As you make that your focus, then the suffering is not meaningless. And so this chunk deals with the right understanding of how God works. I think 11, verse 11 summarizes this well. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. 
What a profound hope I think this gives us in suffering. If, we, if our posture is one that suffering is meaningless, then it would feel pretty grim every time we suffered, and you will suffer in life, and many of us suffer quite a lot, to one thing or another, right? But understanding that as we have our, fix, our eyes fixed on the joy set before us, this suffering has been transformed by a suffering Savior, and it's no longer meaningless. He made a way through the cross and serves as our perfect example because Jesus in his own suffering in enduring the cross saw the joy set before him. And so we have an example. Here it is. The joy is set before him. He endured the cross. This portion is not an exhortation necessarily, I don't think. Okay? So as I read this, you might be thinking, okay, being enduring suffering with joy for the hope set before us so that we can be trained by it and become more like the image of Christ. Boy, that sounds like an exhortation, but I'm going to argue that it's not. I think that's just the truth. That's the reality. If you're, if you're dwelling is in Christ, if you have accepted him as your Lord and Savior, if your hope, if your faith, your trust is set in him alone, then this is a truth that you can stand on, a foundational block that you can stand on to face the exhortations to come. Why do I think that? Let's look at 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Oh, is it coming? Seth, you with me? All right, maybe not. I'm going to read it. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Read that one more time. This is, this is such a powerful text. One, it puts perspective on the suffering. Does it, sometimes when we suffer, it just feels like, wow, this is so much. This is so much. But what's this saying? Light and momentary troubles. Light and momentary troubles. Achieving what? An eternal glory that far outweighs, far outweighs every, all, the, the sum of every struggle you will ever face. You combine the sum of every struggle you will every, ever face, every suffering you will ever, fa- ever face when you are walking, when you are s- suffering in the path of obedience to Jesus. It's not meaningless. It's building something. It's building an eternal glory that far outweighs the sum of them all. Wow, that's awesome, right? This brings us to 12 through 17. And this is what I would call peak two. And this is then, one, it starts in 12, it says, therefore, which makes me think something happened, right? Okay, so the exhortation here is to right doing, an outcome of right understanding. So we understand that our suffering is producing something greater, right? A glory eternal that far outweighs all the suffering we will experience in life, okay? 
We just read about that. And that is giving us a platform to right doing. And right doing in 12 through 17 is put this way. In, in verse 12, it says, strengthen. Leads to a strengthening of our limbs, of our knees. Perseverance that's built in strength. In 13, it says level, it talks about level paths. In 14, it talks about peace with everyone and holiness. And then in 16, it says, don't be like Esau. <laughs> you know, it's, there's the kind of the flip. Don't, don't be like Esau. So in 13, where it talks about the level paths, I want to kind of pick at this a little bit because we talked last week about the nature of salvation and that salvation is a, is a corporate experience. The salvation was for all of God's children. So there's a corporate nature. It's corporate in nature. And similar, I think, this concept of making level paths. We oftentimes think about our journey so isolated, we don't think about the impacts of our own faith walk on the people walking in faith with us, right? We're so isolated in, I am making my level path, and my brother's over there, and my sister's up there, and I'm focused on my level path, but I don't realize that my sister in front of me already made a level path, and I could walk in that, but I'd rather walk right here. See what I'm saying? <laughs> Make level paths for your feet. For what? So that the lame not, may not be disabled, but rather healed. That's referring to others. So as we are laying out, or maybe yourself, right? As we're laying out these level paths, and we're walking together, we're creating a space for those around us to heal rather than become broken, right? What a beautiful thing. We live in a country that wants us to do our own thing. I tell you what, we live in a nation that wants us to do it together, okay? Nation, not USA. Nation, the kingdom of God, amen? Wants us to do it together. We're to have that type of relationship where we can trust and love, pursuing trust and love in such a way that as we're going forward, as one foot's going in front of the other, as we're walking this path, that we're creating an environment in the community of healing, not brokenness. I'm going to jump to the negative example of Esau. So 16, verse 16 talks about Esau. And I think the important thing here, again, Scott referenced this earlier, don't trade the temporary for the eternal. Don't trade in the eternal for a bowl of cornflakes, right? Or for a car, or for a job, or for shame, guilt, or anything else. Don't trade. And then we're jumping back to 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. This concept is everyone. This isn't just to the body of believers. This is with everyone. So we're to be putting forth every effort to live at peace with everyone, everyone. How are we doing? <laughs> I like that. That's good. Yeah. I mean, so in our relationships, whether it's at work, whether it's on social media, whether it's in church with the believers or outside of the church with unbelievers, we're to be making every effort to live in peace. Hmm. And then this part struck me particularly. And, and, and so then it says, and, and to be holy, without holiness, no one will see 
the Lord. Verse 14, make peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm supposed to fix my eyes on Jesus, and without holiness, I can't see the Lord. It's an interesting thing. So then I started thinking a little bit about holiness. And my wife pointed out to me that in the Bagels and Bibles class that you're doing, the author, Christian Wright, puts uh, forward this question, I think in the first chapter. It's not too late to join that class, by the way. Main problem is not how we get to heaven when we die, but how can a holy and loving creator God once again dwell in harmony with humans? Interesting. And I think Jesus is the answer. And so what I want us to look at is I have a video that goes through what holiness is, and, and this will give kind of, a, I think, a, a better picture of, of, uh, of how to understand holiness. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. 
And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. We have been transformed by the forever made new by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, right? We talked about this. I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, but it's forever, and we are new, and we are saints because of this, and we are repeatedly referred to as saints. I had a great conversation with my brother Bill uh, this, this week about the nature of sin and the nature of sainthood and the fact that our identity is one of saint, not sinner. Do we struggle with temptation and these other things? That's a reality. That's a truth. But our identity, who we claim to be, where we rest is we are 
children of God. When God looks down from heaven and he looks at you, he sees Jesus because Jesus paid it all. And the author of Hebrews goes on to reiterate this. And I was going to read the text. I'm going to skip it because we're running long, but I'm going to talk to you about the concepts. Here the author talks. From 18 to 21, he talks about Mount Sinai. And if you're interested in learning more about this Mount Sinai and what was going on there, I would encourage you to check out Exodus 19, 10 through 22, okay? Exodus 19, 10 through 22. If you forget it, it's all recorded, folks. So go find it, check it out. It's really, really neat. So we have Sinai and we have Zion, a physical mountain and a representation of God's living city heavenly Jerusalem, okay? So that's 22 through 24, the Mount of Joy, Zion, the Mount of Fear, Sinai. If you want to know a little bit more about Zion, then I'd encourage you to check out Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. The point is there are two mountains referenced, and I think the intention is to get a grasp of this new experience of holiness, Okay, because what do they have in common? God met his people there, right? In, in Zion, he's, he's meeting with his people. And in Sinai, he met with his people. Now, when he met with his people in Sinai, they're like, ah, don't speak. You're making me lose my mind. Moses, go take care of it. So we have Sinai. It's, it's uninhabitable, un, uninhabitable. And Zion, which is full of life. We have Sinai, fear, darkness, storms, and Zion, joy, communion, celebration. Sinai, the blood of Abel, which calls for vengeance and retribution. Zion, the blood of Christ, which calls for forgiveness and reconciliation and repentance. Sinai, which the law given, the law is given. That's where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Zion, Christ gives us the perfect new covenant of grace. Sinai, there's three days that they put in preparation, cleansing themselves so that the holiness of God wouldn't leave them dead in their tracks. Zion, on the third day, Christ is risen and death is defeated and you are cleansed forever by the work of Christ. You don't need to cleanse yourself anymore. Amen? Sinai, we have a mediator. It's Moses. What a guy. You know, he was a really great guy. Check his life out. But he was no mediator next to Christ. Our perfect high priest, our perfect mediator. With this concept of holiness, we can see here that, that there, is, there, there is a drastic difference from what had been experienced to what is being experienced in our covenant with Christ. Glory be to God. In conclusion, I want to look at the last few verses because it brings our final exhortation for the text. I'll welcome the musicians up. At that time, this is verse 26 through 27, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heavens. And the words, once more, indicate 
the removing of what can be shaken. That is created things. So that what cannot be shaken may remain. And then we have therefore, therefore, this is our final encouragement. Since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Let us be thankful. Let us be thankful. And out of that thankfulness, out of that joy that is set before us, we can worship completely, acceptably, with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. Right? We see that. It is so clear at Sinai. It is so clear in, uh, through his presence in the temple. It is so clear in the imagery of the sun. So with awe and wonder, let us be filled with thanksgiving that we can welcome this consuming fire into our lives to cleanse us from the inside out. Amen? Let's worship together.